This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. We may do this study today in a two-part. I haven't decided yet, but we'll, we'll see how far we get in the first part. And uh, sometimes I'll give it in one, sometimes I've given it in two. And uh, we may just break it up and, and have a couple of shorter ones today, which is unusual for me, as you know. So uh, the scripture order is down in the bottom left corner. That's the order we'll follow. I may inject one or two. If I do, I'll tell you. And uh, there's some not in that order there that are actually on the front that I'll point you to. The scriptures are typed out on the inside as well as on the back, and we'll start in, on the inside, of course, in just a moment. But we want to introduce this study today with the scripture you see below the, the title, 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul said to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I want to look at that passage for just a moment and break it down a little bit. The first thing Paul told Timothy was study. Now, some translations render that give diligence. They don't use the word study. They'll say give diligence to show thyself approved. But any giving of diligence, of course, would involve study, of course. So uh, King James has the word study and now I want you to notice that he commands Timothy to study, but then he gives the reason for it. He didn't say, study to show off what you know. Study so you can win a religious argument with your family or with your neighbors. He said, study to show thyself approved unto God. And so the Lord wants us to study then. Paul wanted Timothy to study so that he would have God's approval. We don't have God's approval unless we're good students of His Word, and we ought to remember that. And I'm so proud of this congregation for the progress that you've made. This is a new congregation, and uh, we have come quite a distance, and, and y'all are really growing in your knowledge, but especially in spiritual growth. I can see the spiritual growth, the love, and the good works and such things that ought to accompany God's people. And I know Ben and others and I have talked about how how wonderful it is to see the growth that's made in this congregation spiritually. Part of that growth, of course, is knowledge. Uh, young men uh, are speaking now, and Jared, of course, is just uh, studying as, as he uh, has learned to appreciate the Bible more, and he's, he's so much more knowledgeable, and everybody's just doing well, and we're very proud of you. But he wants us to study to have God's approval. Then he says... Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman. When we amass knowledge of God's Word, He wants us to use it. In other words, not just keep the knowledge for ourselves, but actually put that Word to use, a workman. So when you get knowledge, be about teaching other people because they need that message. They don't have knowledge. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. If we're not prepared when we do try to work, we're going to be put to shame. And I can remember right after I obeyed the gospel, I was working at a trucking company in their general office back down in Fort Smith. And, and uh, I set up a study with a fellow that uh, I knew quite well there at work. I just thought the world of this man. And, 
he was a, just a, a nice guy, and I thought, you know, he needs the truth. I'll set this study up. The problem was he brought a friend of his from the church where he attended, and they had some questions I couldn't answer as a new Christian. I knew I had the truth, but I couldn't deal with some of the things that were, were stated to me, and so I left there ashamed. And I remember saying to myself that night, I'm not going to let this happen again. If I'm going to set studies up with people, then I'm going to be able to answer the arguments that they make and, and uh, defend what, what I believe to be the truth. And so I've tried to live up to that because it's a horrible thing to be put to shame out here. And I think that's why a lot of people don't set studies up. They're just afraid that will happen to them and they won't be able to answer some things and that they'll get put to shame. So if we'll study, we can avoid that, see. And then he said, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that implies the word can be wrongly divided. Some translations also render that part of the verse, handling aright the word of truth, they will say, instead of rightly dividing. The Bible is a book to be rightly divided, and I'll point that out. You know, we have to watch who's speaking and who they're speaking to and what covenant's in effect and such things as that. What, what law are they under, for example? And rightly divide that word, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Now, obviously, God is very particular about His word. If you're looking there on the front of your chart, look on the left side in that first column. You'll see three scriptures typed out. The first, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Because when Moses gave the law to the children of Israel, before they entered into the promised land, before Moses died, what he did in Deuteronomy was rehearse the law with them, the law that he'd gotten back in Exodus. And he tells them in Deuteronomy 4 and 2, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Moses said, Don't add a thing to this word, and don't take anything from it. God's very particular about that word. In Proverbs 30 and 6, Solomon writes, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. So again, there's that warning not to add to the word. And then finally in Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, almost the last verses of the New Testament. This is the last chapter, maybe four or five verses from the end of the chapter. John says, For I testify again to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. There again, the final warning is given to us there in the New Testament. God has always been very zealous for his word and does not want us tampering with it. And so... We need to come to this word then with reverence, with great respect, with great love for finding the truth, because let's remember these warnings. He does not want this word tampered with in any way. And you know, when I think about the religious world today and the hundreds of different churches and just the different doctrines that are being preached out here in these different churches, some of them 180 degrees from the others, for example, some will insist that baptism is by immersion only. Others will say, no, you can have sprinkling or pouring. 
See, that's just completely opposite. Some say you can fall from grace. Some say you can't. Just the opposite, see. Some say baptism's essential. Others say no, it isn't. And so on and on we see these differences. Somebody's adding to the Word or taking away from it or we wouldn't have these kind of differences, see. That's the obvious thing. And so we have these warnings. Now, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> there was a time, if you were a member of the Church of Christ, it was assumed that you had a knowledge of this book. And I want us to be part of that that group that has that reputation that we are people of the book, that we know the book. I was uh, reading one time about a court trial that happened over in Tennessee, and I don't sanction what happened, but nonetheless, here's what did happen that day. They usually had a Bible there in the courtroom and on which they had witnesses lay hands, and I'm not, I'm not sanctioning that, but they laid hands on the Bible and they swore their witnesses in. Somebody had misplaced the Bible. They couldn't find it in the courtroom that day. Finally, someone asked, is there a member of the Church of Christ in here? And a fellow in the back raised his hand. And the, the official said, sir, you come up here. We'll have the witnesses lay your hands on this man. These folks are walking Bibles. So we had that reputation. Again, I don't sanction them laying hands on a man and swearing witnesses in. But what I am saying is the church was known that if you were a member of it, you knew the Bible. And I want us to have that reputation. We should still have that kind of reputation. Well, so-and-so is a member of the Church of Christ. He knows the Bible very well. Those people do. I want them to say that about us, to say it about each and every one of us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So we ought to have that kind of reputation. So this morning I want to start a maybe what will be a two-part and the first thing I want to do is talk about some, some things that will hinder our study. There are things that hinder our gaining knowledge, our study of the Bible. Then I want to talk to you about things that will help our study, things we can do to help in studying. And finally, number three, if we get time, and we may not, I want to talk about blessings that we can obtain from a knowledge of God's Word because God never commands us to study. He never gives a commandment that he doesn't have a reason for it and a blessing and maybe several blessings that come to us from obeying what he says to do. We'll talk about that down on the end. And I want to talk quite a bit about that in fact. Now first of all, several things that hinder our study. And the first that I want to mention is that some people read the Bible without intending to understand it. In other words, folks read the Bible out of a sense of duty. We have people that are daily Bible readers. When I was just a boy growing up, there was an elderly man that was a neighbor. And uh, those were back in the days when folks sat out in the porch swings. We didn't have air conditioning. And so he had a porch swing, and uh, we did too. Everybody did nearly, it seemed like. And we were front porch people back then. We visited one another and sat on the porches because at night it was hot, especially, you know, like in the summer. And so neighbors got together. It was a different America back then. And uh, this old man would be seen sitting there in the swing uh, reading his Bible. And he did that every day. And he did it day and night. I know uh, we got the newspaper and he didn't and so when dad got through with the paper my job of an of evening 
before we went to bed was to take the paper down to Mr. Chumney, the neighbor, so that he could read the newspaper. When I would go in his house, he would holler at me to come in when I knocked, and I'd walk in, and he was sitting there reading the Bible. And he didn't know what was in the Bible. I know he didn't because I know what he believed. But nonetheless, he had read through the Bible many times, and a lot of folks will tell you, hey, I've read through the Bible four or five times. And so they have, but they don't know very much about it because there's a difference in reading and, and, and a difference in studying. And some people just let the Bible fly open wherever it will. They have no, no rhyme or reason for going to that particular part without ever intending really to understand and thinking that they can get what they need just by letting the Bible fall open somewhere. And you know, if you were going to look up a word in a dictionary, you wouldn't just open the dictionary to any page. You would go to the, the place that dealt with the definition of that word, wouldn't you? And we'd look in alphabetical order. The Bible is a, is a book like this. It's got places you go for different things. And we have to know where to go. If we want something on love, we know we're going to 1 Corinthians 13. We're not going to go to chapter 14. That's dealing with church assemblies. And we're not going to get anything there much on love, see. So there's just places you, you have to learn to go in the Bible. You can't let it just fall open. I read one time of a woman that was depressed. Really, she was suicidal. And she was, uh, she was really tempted to take her life. Life had just become too difficult for her. She had burdens. And her thought was, I'm just going to end it all. But she told herself, I will go to the Bible and see what it says before I do this. So she flopped her Bible open to a spot there, and it happened to land on Matthew 27 and 5. Then Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, you know, if you're suicidal, you don't need that verse. That was not the verse you needed. But again, she was letting the Bible fly open. And so she opens it again to another place. It landed at Luke 10, 37. It said, Go thou and do thou likewise. She sure didn't need that advice. She tries it another time and opens it up, and this time lands on John 13, 27. That thou doest, do quickly. So she got the message, go hang yourself quickly like Judas. That was the message she got by flopping the Bible open. You cannot just flop the Bible open anywhere and expect to get what you need. It's a book that, as we said, has to be rightly divided. And you have to go to those parts that deal with certain things. And some people read the Bible just out of a sense of duty. They don't have any intention of really digging down into the Word to see what it says. They're just reading the Bible. And they never learn the Bible. They learn trivia. They learn Bible stories. They can tell you about the flood a little bit. They can tell you about David and Goliath. They can tell you about certain Bible stories. But to just know what the Bible says and how to put things together, they don't. Because there's a difference in study and a difference in reading. In John 5 and 39, now these are on the inside now, if you want to start there with me. John 5, 39, Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. And I would say to us this morning, there's a difference in searching and reading. 
How many of you have been at the park or maybe out in the yard somewhere and you drop something valuable to you? Might be a ring, could be a coin, could be something that's of value to you. And um, you really think highly of that object, whatever it be. Do you just casually walk across the ground and, and just take a casual look at it and say, well, I don't see that. Doggone it, I've lost it. If it's something precious to you, you get down. How many of you have gotten down on the grass and separated leaves and debris and rolled the grass back just looking for that object? You were searching, see. That's what Jesus said to Search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, in the verses preceding that, Paul and Silas and Timothy have come from Philippi over to Thessalonica, second missionary journey. And there Paul goes into a synagogue and he reasoned three days there at Thessalonica, it says, with those Jews out of the synagogues. What was the result of all that effort? They ran him out of town. He had to leave by night. And when he left Thessalonica, he went down to a city called Berea, about 60 miles southwest. When he went into the synagogue there in verse 11 of Acts 17, the Bible says of these Jews, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. In that they received the word with all readiness of mind, notice, and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. They searched the scriptures. And consequently, Paul had a great work in Berea. In fact, when he left there going to Athens on this second journey, he left behind Timothy and Silas and went down to Athens alone because they had had success there and so he wanted to leave some workers behind to encourage that church and to get things more set in order. And so he would not leave that infant church by itself there. Left some workers even though he needed them himself and they did join him later when he left Athens and went over to Corinth. But nonetheless, there was success at Berea because those Jews searched the Scriptures. So we don't want to just be found reading the Bible. That's fine. We need to study the Bible. We need to search it, see. That's the idea. So if we just read without intending to understand, that's going to hinder us. Number two, some people search to try to prove preconceived ideas. In other words, their mind's made up when they go to the Bible. They, uh, they've already assumed that some doctrine is true. And so they go to the Bible to try to prove that doctrine. And we should never do that because the Bible is the doctrine. Now I hadn't planned on doing this, but if you've got a Bible, you might look at Revelation 17. Just a moment. Revelation 17. I get amazed in Revelation at what people do when the plain truth is laying in front of them, if they would search. Um, but they go to the Bible here in chapter 17 with their mind made up. When you study premillennialism, for example, fellows like Hal Lindsey and others that have written on that subject, they believe that the woman mentioned here in chapter 17, there's a, there's a harlot riding a seven-headed beast. And most all the premillennials believe that the harlot is Babylon, of course, and it says she is, but that this is a world religion, they say, that's coming in the future. The harlot is a world religion. Some of them make it the Catholic Church, and uh, that's not true either. 
and uh, even though that religion might be off base, nonetheless, it's not the harlot here in chapter 17. Look down at verse 18. The Bible says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. The woman is a city. See that? She's not a world religion. The Bible tells you that. If folks won't go to their Bible with their minds already made up that this is a worldwide religion coming in the future. It is not a worldwide religion. John is told it's a city that reigns over the kings of the earth. And what city reigned over the kings of the earth in John's day? Rome did. That's why she's riding the beast. Rome is the capital city of Rome. She sits on the beast. The beast is Rome. And the capital city, of course, is pictured as a harlot. Rome is pictured here, figuratively, in all her seductive attire, as a harlot that seduces the nations with her commerce, with her trade, and such things as that. The book of Revelation is really a first century book. It's written to warn the early church of a coming persecution by Rome, specifically an emperor by the name of Domitian that would come along. He is the beast that was, is not, and yet is here in chapter 17. And when you study this all out by going to Daniel 7 and other such places in the Bible, Revelation 13 and others, and piece this together, it's rather obvious what it is. But if we go to the Bible with our minds made up like folks are doing, we're never going to get the truth. And so these people never get the truth. They're still steeped in premillennialism. They would have given that up long ago if they would just search the Scriptures, see. So don't go to the Bible with your minds made up. Understand that the Bible is the truth. Don't say, I've got the truth and try to make the Bible fit it. Go to the Bible to get the truth. Look at John 7 and verse 17, one of my favorite verses, the words of Christ here. Jesus said, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So if any man is willing to do his will, Jesus said, If you really want to do God's will, you'll know the truth. You'll know the doctrine. And you'll know what I'm teaching, whether it's of God or whether I'm speaking of myself. That is, humanly speaking, on my own. Just, uh, just be willing to do it. Now, when we go to the Bible, tell yourself this and tell the Lord this. Maybe stop and pray, Lord, I just want the truth. I don't care what it is. If it differs with my family, I'm willing to take it. Lord, if it differs with any church, I still want your truth, whatever it is. I'm willing to give up any error I've got. Just help me to understand your word and then go with that attitude that uh, whatever that will is, you're going to do his will. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Now, you may not get it the first time you go. Keep going. Keep going back. Keep looking and searching. And eventually, if you'll come with that kind of attitude, toward God's Word, you'll have the truth. And if we don't have that kind of truth, we're going to believe lies, religious lies. That's what happens to people. You see, God expects us to love the truth. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12. 
Paul said, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, what cause? Because they don't love the truth. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they might all be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So he talks about being deceived with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Those that perish have been deceived. He said they receive not the love of the truth. He didn't say that they didn't receive the truth. He said they receive not the love of the truth. We've got to love the truth. They receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. A lot of people aren't saved today because they don't love the truth. And he said, for this cause, because they don't love the truth, God will send them strong delusion. The American standard says God will send them a working of error. A working of error. I don't believe that God deliberately deludes people. I really don't. But I do believe that those who do not love the truth, He will allow them to be worked upon by error to the extent that they'll come to believe a lie. And the result is, he said, that they might all be damned. And that word damned means condemned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we've got to love the truth, whatever it is. And if we don't, we will believe lies. I want you to always remember that. If you don't love the truth, you will believe lies. That's just how it works. And this is what's wrong with a lot of people coming to the Bible with their mind already made up. You see, they don't love the truth, and they're not going to change, and they're not looking for truth. They're looking for something in that Bible they think will substantiate what they already believe to be the truth. But the Bible, you see, contains the truth. Don't go to the Bible with your mind made up. Go to the Bible with your mind very open, and let God give you the truth, and He'll do that if you'll keep going. Number three, there are folks that are hindered in study and learning the truth because they reject the words of Christ in order to please men. They're more interested in pleasing a church or pleasing their family members or someone like that than they are in pleasing the Lord. And you know, I get amazed sometimes at what folks will do with the Bible. I have been in Bible studies where folks would just literally just change the word. They didn't like what it said. And so when you read a passage, you know, instead of accepting what the verse said, they look for a way around that verse, especially things like baptism and other subjects. They're hunting a way around that rather than accepting it. And so they never find the truth doing that. They're rejecting the Word in order to please the church where they attend or somebody else. And one reason I'm amazed at folks doing that is simply because this word's going to be opened on the day of judgment. And I don't know what folks think they're going to do when they try to circumvent the Bible now. What will they do when they stand in front of Jesus? John 12, 48. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I've spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So Christ just says, this word's going to judge you in the last day. Now when we stand in front of Jesus, we're not going to change this word. We're not going to tell the Lord on Mark 16, 16 that day that baptism's not essential. 
when he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what he meant. And, and we're not going to get around that because the author of that word is sitting right there, and he's our judge. What do we have to gain here on earth then by trying to circumvent God's word when we're going to have to face the author of it one day, and he's going to be the one judging whether we go to heaven or hell? And so it looks to me like folks should be thinking about pleasing him here before they have to face him there, being honest with his word right now rather than being forced to accept it then because we will, we will bow the knee to Jesus. Everybody will. The most rebellious will do that. And those who do not believe he's Lord now will proclaim him Lord that day. And they'll do so in fear the most awful, dreadful fear we can imagine. Because when he comes in all of his glory, a glory, remember, that blinded Paul because the glory of Jesus that day at noon was brighter than the noonday sun. We're going to have to stand before a being like that and give an account for how we've dealt with the Word. Some people love a religious group, a church or a synagogue or whatever it is more than the Word of God. They just do being affiliated with a particular church. My brothers of a different denomination, and uh, even than, uh, than some that I grew up in. We grew up in different churches when I was a boy. And uh, I guess by the time that I was 20 years old, we'd been to three or four different denominations. So I knew quite a bit about those denominations and yet nothing about the Bible. Nonetheless, my brother came to me one time and he said, you know, our headquarters, and they, they don't have independent congregations. They have to answer to uh, districts and head offices and things like that that have control of their money. He told me one day, he said, uh, you know, I don't know what we're going to do. He said, the, the, the main church here wants uh, such and such percentage of our contributions this year and we don't have the money. I said, well, don't send it in. Well, he said, we've got to send it in or we can't be a part of them. I said, don't be a part of them. He said, yes, but we want to be. I said, all right, go ahead and send them your money then, you know, if that's what you want to do. Uh, because people will please those kind of denominations just to stay a part of them. Why would they even want to be a part of them is the question. But I'm reminded here in John 12, 42, 43, of the Lord dealing with the chief priests. The Bible says, nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogues, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So you got these chief rulers in these synagogues. They controlled the synagogue, basically, except the Pharisees have already said that anybody that embraces Christ will be thrown out of the synagogue. They don't want to lose their position of power there. They're chief rulers. And so they believed on Jesus, it says. But they wouldn't confess him because they might be put out of that synagogue. They love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And they're just folks that way. They will not give up the group they're affiliated with in order to follow the, whatever the truth is. And friends, here's another thing that hinders sometimes, and that's love for family. Love for family will hinder people from accepting the truth of God's Word. 
Christ warned us about that in Matthew 10. Let's look at verse 34 to 39. Jesus said, Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and falleth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. But he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So Jesus plainly says, you've got to love me. You've got to love me more than your father or mother, more than your son or daughter, more than your mother-in-law or your daughter-in-law. You've got to love me more than anyone in the world. And if you don't, you can't be my disciple. That's, that's very plain right here, isn't it? And yet there are people that will not be separated from their family. They won't get up and leave a church even when they see that the practice is wrong because it separates them from their family and they don't want that. But you know, if we love the truth sometimes, you just got to get up and leave family and walk away from it. Walk away from these churches. Walk away from family members and loved ones. Doesn't mean you don't love them. It means you love the Lord more. And after all, these family members are not going to judge us in the last day. Jesus is. So in essence, it doesn't matter what mother or father or son or daughter or mother-in-law or daughter-in-law or anyone else thinks. What matters is what Christ thinks. And so in order to please Him sometimes, it costs relationships. It will divide homes. The Lord knew it would, and He didn't want that. Jesus was not about dividing people. But He knew that His Word would be divisive to folks. That by embracing what he taught, other family members who would not would be divided from them that embraced him. And so he warned them, you've got to love me more. So those are things that hinder our study. Just reading without intending to understand. Coming to the Bible with preconceived ideas. Uh, loving other people, our churches, more than we love Jesus and listening to them instead of His Word. These will hinder ever coming to a knowledge of the truth. Let's talk about some things now that will help your study. Number one, pick a good translation. There's a lot of bad translations, a lot of bad versions of Bibles. And I'm amazed sometimes, sometimes folks pick a they pick a Bible because they'll say, this one's easy to read. Yes, but is it accurate? You know, just because something's easy to read doesn't mean that's the one we need. We need the one that's accurate, that's faithful to the Scripture, faithful to the original language. And there are just some, some translations that aren't. One translation, supposedly a translation that I can name right off, is the Bible that the Jehovah's Witnesses used. It's called the New World Translation. The New World Translation. It didn't come along to around 1960. They studied out of the King James up until that time. And when the Witnesses come around to me and they want to study, if they do, I'm, I'm always happy to study with them. But I tell them, I'm not going to study out of your New World Translation. <laughs> 
I won't do that. And they don't like to hear that, but I ask them. I just, I try to, I try to bait them and set them up, and here's what I do. I ask them if any Jehovah's Witnesses were saved before 1960. Now, they're not going to condemn their own, are they? So they'll say, yes, they were saved. Well, I happen to know that I said, well, they used the King James up till 1960. So up to 1959 or so, why, you could be saved following the King James. If those folks back there could be saved using the King James, let's just use the King James. See, I won't study with you out of this new world. And you don't want to study out of it with them because they have, they have rigged it. And even then, they, they still have trouble with their doctrine. They were having trouble proving their doctrines, obviously. And uh, why wouldn't they? Because if you knew their doctrine, you'd see they'd have trouble. You see, they don't believe there's a literal hell. They don't believe man has a soul within his body. They believe he is a soul. They believe Jesus was Michael the archangel. This is true. They have all this false doctrine, and of course, you can't, you can't get that out of the Bible. And so they were having problems, and they, they needed their own translation pretty bad, and so they just made up their own. And they want to talk about how good it is. It is not good. Look here at, uh, look at John 1 and 1 here in this middle column, under the bottom section where it says number 2. Here's the New World Translation on John 1 and 1. Notice, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. See that? They're calling Jesus a God. The Bible calls Him God. They do not believe in the deity of Jesus, as I said. They believe He's Michael the archangel. And so they have rigged their translation here. Now what's interesting about this you see the word God with a capital G there underlined. The Greek word there is theos, and it means deity. The word was with God, deity, theos. And then when it says the word was God, did you know that's theos too? That's the same Greek word. They just put a little G on it because they don't believe in the divinity of Christ. So they stuck a small G on it. Not only that, they stuck the article A in there, the the article A is not in the Greek. It doesn't say Christ was a God. It says He was God. In the beginning was the Word. Look, look on the inside at John 1 and 1. There in the King James. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, Theos. And the Word was God, Theos. Same word, see. And there's capital G's on that, and there's no article A. It doesn't say He was a God. It says He was God. Now, there's a big difference in these translations, isn't there? And you see now why I won't use that translation with them. I'm not going to study out of a book that's rigged. Because what we're going to wind up doing if I study with them out of that is we're going to battle over these words. Then we're going to have to break out lexicons and interlinears. We're going to be involved in all kinds of different books, looking up word definitions. And I'd rather have something where I can trust the translators, not have to run to a lexicon for every word. And uh, so I just won't study with them. Remember that. Watch the translation you use. Here's another example, the Revised Standard. Revised Standard. Look at it on Acts 8, 36 to 38. Now this is a quote right out of the American Standard. And this is Philip and the eunuch. 
They're riding along on the road, remember. He's preached unto him, Jesus. Verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What is to prevent my being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. You see, verse 37 is omitted in that translation. It's not in there. When you read that on the inside there with me out of the King James, let's read it, 36 to 38. It's got verse 37 in it. As they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. See, verse 37 is a confession. And we're told that if we confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead and will be saved. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This is the confession. This is the confession. This is confessing with the mouth the Lord Jesus. And so before we're baptized, we make that confession. That's what he did here. But you see, verse 37 does not appear in this in this revised standard. I just wanted to point some things like this out. There's, there's all kinds of differences in these, some of the translations. Be careful what you use. If you're not sure about it, talk to somebody that might recommend a good translation. Secondly, if you're going to study, look up the meaning of words you don't know. How many times when we're reading the Bible... Do we come across a word and because we've heard it so often we assume we know the word? One of those words is Samaritan. And so when you ask somebody what is a Samaritan, now we've talked about it some here. What is a Samaritan? Some of them will say, well, you know, Jesus talked about a good Samaritan in Luke 10. I know he did, but what's a Samaritan? Well, in Luke 17, remember, there were ten lepers, and one of them returned to give thanks, and he was a Samaritan, yes, but what is a Samaritan? You see, we read that word often in scriptures, but what is a Samaritan? We read there in, in uh, notice a passage here, look in John, uh, I believe it's John, let me find the reference here, John 4 and verse 9. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask of drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so I ask again, what is a Samaritan? You see, if we don't know what a Samaritan is, it's going to affect John chapter 4, especially the verse, first uh, 42 verses of that, of that chapter. Because Jesus stops at Jacob's well there in Samaria, near the Samaritan city of Sychar, which is about a half a mile away from that well. And he's hot and he's thirsty, and it's about noon. And the disciples leave him and go into the city to buy food. And here comes a, a woman of Samaria to that well to draw water. Jesus asked her, give me to drink. And that's when she said, how is it that thou, being a Jew, Ask us drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria. The Jews have no dealings with these Samaritans. 
And uh, what does she mean by that? Why won't the Jews have dealings with Samaritans? What's wrong with a Samaritan? What is a Samaritan? See, But we read over that word because we've heard it so much and we don't stop to study out what it is. And when we don't know, we miss the import of the chapter. Later down in that chapter, she will say to Christ, she starts a religious argument with him, actually. She'll say, Sir, I, uh, I perceive that thou art a prophet. I believe that's about verse 19 there. She said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What does she mean, our fathers worshipped in this mountain? What's she talking about? What's she talking about? Well, nearby to that well, if we know uh, what lies behind all of this, there's a, there's a couple of mountains there. One of them is Mount Gerizim, and the other is Mount Ebal. And when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land here, he put half the camp under the shadow of Mount Gerizim, half under uh, Mount Ebal, and he said, Mount Gerizim shall be the sign of God's blessings upon you, in your generations, Mount Ebal will be the sign of God's curse. And they actually worship God right here. And it was one of the first worshiping places they ever worshiped when they, when they came into the land of Canaan to conquer the land under Joshua. You see, they worshiped right here. She's saying, our fathers worshiped in these mountains. Now you're saying that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You see, the Jews had a temple that Solomon had built in Jerusalem. That was their center of worship. And what she's saying to Christ is, you're, you're going down here, you're saying, I've got to go to Jerusalem. That is, that is new stuff. That's modernism. The old traditional site, the way we did it years ago, our fathers worshipped in these mountains, and we're still worshipping here. No thank you for the temple, see. And so she's just really starting an argument with her. But if we don't know what it, what what she meant when she said our fathers worshiped in these mountains, we're not going to catch the meaning of John chapter 4. See what I'm saying? And so that takes study, and you don't learn that by reading the Bible. You, you can read John 4 all day long, and you'll never know what she meant by our fathers worshiped in this mountain unless you really get back and look at what she's talking about. See, You'll never know what a Samaritan is unless you go back and look at the history of how that race formed. And you'll find out it's a mixed race Israelite that, uh, that intermarried with Gentiles that were moved into the land of Canaan. But I, I won't go back into that. We've talked about that some, but nonetheless, see, that's important. Now, now we can understand why the Jews look down with contempt upon them because <clears throat> they, they are Israelites that had polluted their bloodline and they had removed themselves from the law of God. And so the Jews just absolutely looked down on them with contempt. So again, look up the meaning of words. Here's another word, Romans 3.25. Paul says of Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What does he mean there? He set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. That's a long word, propitiation. What does it mean? You see, if I don't know what propitiation means, I won't know the meaning of Romans 3.25. I won't know how Christ 
when we have faith that His blood becomes our propitiation. What is that word? But you see, we will read Romans 3 and we'll read over that word and just keep going, don't we? But if you study the Bible and you don't know that word, you'll stop and say, hey, I need to know what that means. And so you'll start trying to define that word. And then the passage then is going to come alive to you. Oh, this is what Jesus is when I have faith in his blood. This is what a propitiation is, see? Now the verse comes alive to you. So stop and look up words and don't just assume you know the meanings. Also, uh, study every passage that pertains to a subject that you can find. And I'll give you a good example using the rich young ruler. If you'll turn there on the inside, you've heard of the story of the rich young ruler, but this story is found in three different places. It's found in Matthew, but it's also found in Mark and Luke. And if you go and study the story of the rich young ruler, remember, he's the one that came to Jesus wanting to know what, what to do to have eternal life. And we call him the rich young ruler. But let's read Matthew's account of him. Matthew 19, 16. When he was gone forth, excuse me, behold, one came and said unto him, Good Master, what, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now that's what Matthew says about this man. He says that uh, one, came, one came to him and called him Good Master and asked what to do. We don't know anything about that man, just that one came to him. Now let's read Mark's account. Mark 10, verse 17. Mark says that when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now we know when the young man came, he came running. He was in a hurry to not let Jesus get away so he could learn his duty. And notice that he kneeled to him. Matthew didn't tell us that. Matthew didn't say a word that he came running. He didn't say that he kneeled. Mark does. So you see, when you bring Mark into the picture now, you get a little bit better concept of the young man. Now let's go to Luke. Luke 18, 18. Luke says, A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We call him the rich young ruler. Did you know Luke is the only record that calls him a ruler? We didn't learn that out of Matthew, and we didn't learn it out of Mark. Luke's the only one who says he was a ruler. See, I wouldn't know that if I just read Matthew's record or Mark's record. But if I put all three records together, I get a lot better picture of the young man. See what I'm saying? So when you're studying the pa passage and there's other places that that's found in there, bring those verses in and blend them together and then take all the details out of them and you'll get the more complete picture. If you're studying a parable of the sower, you're going to find that in, in more than one place. Go get the multiple records of that parable and put them all together. And you'll get a lot more out of that parable. Finally here, when we think about things that will help us, um, read before and after a passage. Before and after. Let's read here from, from Acts 16. This is a conversion of the Philippian jailer. Verse 29 to 31. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas 
and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now there's that question, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So the answer to that question was given this way, Believe. I was studying with a lady out in the Texas Panhandle one time. This has been several years ago, and not so many either. But uh, she did not believe baptism was essential. She thought we were saved by faith only. And when I talked to her about salvation and asked her what the plan was, she said, all you got to do is believe. She quoted Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I asked her, I said, well, do we have to repent to be saved? Yeah, we have to repent. Well, it, I said, it doesn't say that in Acts 16, 31. You have to get that in another passage. Well, she granted that, you do. You've got to find it somewhere else. I said, now what about baptism? Well, that's not essential. Well, how do you know? Because all you've got to do is believe. Yes, but it doesn't mention repentance. Yeah, I know that. Uh, if it doesn't mention repentance, and that's required, and it doesn't mention baptism, is there a possibility maybe that's required? She said, no. And she stuck with her guns here in, Matthew, in Acts 16, 31. She wouldn't change. She was staking her eternity on that passage. Now, if she'd read before verse 31 and after verse 31, she might have picked up more information. Let's go back and look what a difference it makes when we read before and after a verse. Here, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke are at Philippi where the gospel's never been preached. There's no synagogue there. And every day they go to prayer, and every day when they go to prayer, there's a young slave girl there. She's called a young damsel. She has some masters that own her. She's, she practices witchcraft because she's got a devil. She's devil-possessed. And every day when Paul and them walk by, that devil in her cries out, These men are servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. The Bible says, This did she many days, but Paul being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hopes of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under, place under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the... Uh, of course, they commanded then to tear their clothes off. Look at verse 23 here now as we read from the text here on the page. Verse 23. When they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Now I want you to notice they laid many stripes. They laid many stripes upon them. They beat Paul and Silas without mercy and many stripes. And then it says that they brought them over to the jailer, charging him to keep them safely. Look at verse 24. Who, having received such charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. You see, he didn't care anything about their wounds. Did he wash these wounds? Did he clean them out? No. No, he took them to the inner part of the prison, to the dungeon. He put their feet in stocks. 
didn't care a thing about their stripes, see. Then at verse 25, notice at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of, it, of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in, came trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's our question. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. There's the answer. Now the problem is they can't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because they've never heard of Him. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And, and this man and his family, they've never heard the Word of God. Now they're told to believe on the Lord and they'll be saved, but they don't, they don't know anything about Him. Look at verse 32. So we're going to read on. They spake unto Him the Word of the Lord and to all that were in His house. Now He can believe. They told him about Jesus, see. Now he's got faith. Faith cometh by hearing the word. And so they spake unto him the word of the Lord and all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. Notice between midnight and one. What did he do? Washed their stripes. What does that tell you? It tells you he repented. See, he didn't, he didn't care about their stripes when they first got him. He thrust them into the inner prison. Now you see he's heard the word. Now he's got faith. He believes. And because of that, he is sorrowful for his sins. Now he cleans up their wounds. See? That shows his change, his repentance. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized. He and all his straightway. Now you see he's obeyed in baptism within that same hour because Jesus said he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. See? And had the lady in, in the panhandle there just stayed with this passage, looked at both sides of it, and she would have seen all of these facts there that she could add in. And she would see then that the man did indeed repent. He washed their stripes. And the man indeed was baptized the same hour of the night. And notice now in verse 34, when he had brought them into his house, he set meat or food before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. They would not eat till they took care of the baptism. Nor is the man said to rejoice until after his baptism. Now his sins are removed, now he's saved. See? He has learned from that word of the Lord that they spake unto him that baptism is essential. And he went the same hour of the night, see. So now everything fits. The man believed, repented, and was baptized. That's how he was saved. It wasn't by faith only, was it? And the, the passage will tell us that if we read before and after. So read before and after verses because context is everything. And I've always told people, you can go to these Greek books and you can read lexicons and get word definitions. But the context of a of a verse is what tells you the meaning of a word. Remember that context defines a word. All the lexicons can do is give you the general meaning of that word.
but the context could tell you how it's used. This word uh, translated cup, some brethren use one container. That word cup there is the Greek word paterion. But you know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup. That's that same word, paterion, and he's talking about a figurative cup, a cup of sorrow, a cup of suffering, a cup of death. Let this cup pass from me. See, that's the same word, same Greek word, but the context tells you it's used figuratively. And so you can go to the dictionary on this word cup and it'll say paterion. It may have drinking vessel, but it won't tell you it's used figuratively here, but the context will. See, and so always remember that. Go and look at the context. Don't just go to the lexicons and take the definition. So these are things that will help our study. Get a good translation. Uh, look up the meaning of words. Study all the passages that have a bearing upon that subject and and then finally, uh, read before and after passages. There's other things we could say. In general, these are just some things that will help us. And I'm going to forego the last part of this, and we'll do it again when we, when we study, and uh, I'll take up that last part and study that with you. Likely, I'll speak again next Sunday, and I'll go ahead and cover that and uh, talk about some blessings that we can obtain from the study of God's Word. But let's close right here for sake of time and uh, let's have an invitation song if somebody should need the Lord this morning. We're certainly not in a hurry. We may close our study down here, but and I didn't know I'd gone this long. My goodness. You don't want me doing that other part, do you? Sorry about that. So uh, nonetheless, uh, the invitation is open if you have need of the Lord in any way. First and last verse of the song selected, you may come and be seated at the front. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.